Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 20, a very appropriate passage for today as uh, we share one last message uh, with me as uh, sort of the, the lead teacher around here as we welcome uh, Caleb Click next week. I was walking over from my car uh, as I parked this morning over in the upper school lot, and as I was walking, the Lord really did strike me with a remembrance of 35 years ago, almost 35 in March, where I walked into the Briarwood High School, and uh, we held our first service as then Briarwood South and what became, of course, Oak Mountain Presbyterian. And let me just tell you, as we sang that song, uh, I can sing that with a whole heart. All my life, God has been faithful. All of my life, our lives here at Oak Mountain, God has been so, so good. And you all are some of the main reasons. So it is actually not with a heavy heart that I stand before you this morning. Nothing but gratitude, nothing but joy, so thankful for you, so thank you for Jesus, and I look forward uh, to the next phase. For those of you who don't know, uh, this next phase, I'll be an assistant pastor here uh, for at least the next four years. I'll be coaching, uh, mentoring, counseling. Uh, primarily younger pastors and younger uh, sessions uh, in our city uh, and beyond, even into the broader nation, the broader kingdom, even outside the PCA, and mission teams around the world. In addition, I'll be mentoring young men in this church, and I'll be working with older men, trying to encourage them to connect with younger men so that we see a lot more of uh, the, the generational uh, discipleship that needs to take place. But this morning, I want to talk to you about what would I like to leave you with as I transition into a new role here at Oak Mountain. And Acts 20 is appropriate because in Acts 20, Paul meets with the elders, and I'm sure there are some congregants there as well, of the church of Ephesus. You need to know that Paul spent more time at the church of Ephesus than with any other church that God had used him to start. And as he says goodbye, and again, thankfully, I'm not saying goodbye, he lays out what the main thing is, how they're to keep the main thing the main thing. And that's what I want to leave you with this morning. Now, the main thing, Paul says, is the gospel of God's amazing grace, clinging to Jesus, understanding that the entire Christian life from beginning to end is clinging to Jesus and the promises of his finished work. Jesus didn't merely come to deliver us from hell. He came to daily transform us and to one day obliterate everything that is broken and fallen and sinful in us. 
But that work begins now and continues into the day we die or Christ takes us home. Now, to set the stage for keeping the main thing the main thing, I'm going to pull out an oldie but goodie. Matter of fact, I would venture to say half of you have never seen this. The others of you are going to crack up even more. About 20 years ago, I began this character that we called Dr. Flay in the gospel way. And I did various sketches to try to use an illustration to make a point. And one of the sketches I actually lifted from David Letterman. Uh, He would have this guy come on, and it would be called Velcro Man. And, uh, well, I'm not even going to describe it. I'm just going to have you watch it. Welcome back, boys and girls. We're so glad that you're back with us for another installment of Dr. Flay in the Gospel Way. Now, if you missed our first show, I just got word from the network that the entire first season is coming out on DVD right around Christmas time, so you can go out and buy the first season. Now, last time we looked at what happens to a heart when it comes into contact with the holiness of God. Well, today we're going to look at the science of the heart from a different perspective. Today we're going to consider where does the heart turn in times of trouble? What kind of things do we like to cling to in times of trouble? For instance, some people like to cling to money. Time get tough. Well, I forgot. I almost forgot my safety goggles. Kids, do not try this at home. Remember, I am a professional. Always put the safety goggles in place. Now, some people, when they undergo troubles, they try to cling to money, and, and it doesn't stick. There's something about money in the heart that they just don't stick together. There's, there's nothing to cling to. Other people turn to recreation and sports, and it just doesn't stick. There's something about the heart that can't cling in difficult times to sports and recreation. Some people turn to entertainment, videos, music, books. It just doesn't stick. Some people actually turn to relationships. Now, people are good things, but people just don't stick. What is it that the human heart can turn to in times of trouble where we can cling to something that really matters? Now, kids, I need a few moments here to get ready to show you what it's like to cling to the only thing the only thing that will really help us in times of trouble. Here we go. Now, Letterman stole this from me, but I'm going to show you what it's like for a soul to turn to Jesus in times of trouble. This is what the heart was created to do, to cling to Jesus. Woo! Look at that. See that? I just stick. I am splatted on Jesus. I am clinging to him and the heart sticks. Okay, kids, that's what we cling to in times of trouble. I hope you cling to Jesus. (laughs) Velcro man. That's who we're supposed to be as followers of Christ. We don't cling to moral philosophy. We don't cling to various things that we think might give us the next experience in the Christian life. What we cling to 
is Jesus, his finished work, and the promise of his grace. And as Paul gathers the church at Ephesus, he makes it very clear, keep clinging to Jesus. Let's all stand out of reverence for God's Word. Follow along as I read Acts 20, verses 17 to 32. We're going to skip a couple verses as I read. This is God's Word. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time, from the first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. But I do not account, skipping to verse 24, but I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night and day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. May God bless the hearing and teaching of His inspired, infallible, inerrant, and authoritative Word. This is God's Word. He gave it to us because He loves us. And He desperately longs for us through this word, to cling to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Jesus, that you build your church. And thank you that the word of your grace is able to give us the inheritance you purchase for us. So help us to grow richer today in Christ and in the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go and have a seat. So, <clears throat> many of you have noticed the appropriateness of this day. 12, 31, 23, take out the forward slashes, 1, 2, 3, 1, 2, 3. 
If you know anything about Oak Mountain, if you know anything about the ministry that God has entrusted to me, the one, two, three, one, two, three is, of course, the beat of the waltz. The waltz is a three-step dance with Christ, a tool that we've developed here at Oak Mountain that reminds us just how is it that we springboard onto Jesus and splat ourselves on Him so that His life and power courses through our hearts. So obviously this morning, on this day in particular, we need to close with understanding more of the gospel waltz. But there's a few other encouragements that I want to leave with you as well. But the first thing that I want to say as I pass the baton today is keep on waltzing. The three steps of the waltz, for those of you who are new or don't remember, is repent, believe, fight. Repent, believe, fight fight. It's a three-step, and they always stay together. It's not a one-hop bunny step. You pick one of those and truncate the gospel of the Christian life. It's not a two-step where you put two of those together, and frankly, that's what many Christians do. The typical dance of the Christian in America, or even worldwide, is confess and try harder. And let me tell you, folks, there's absolutely no Jesus in that. It's, it's actually an anti-Christian life. If you're approaching life just confessing your sin and trying harder not to do that again, that is not the Christian life because there's no Jesus in it. The waltz is repent, believe, and fight. Fight against sin, fight for righteousness. And Paul, like most scriptures, clearly reveals the waltz in this concluding message to the church at Ephesus. Look at verse 21. Paul says what he, what he proclaimed, what he testified about, was repentance toward God. Notice that's the first thing Paul says. The first step toward transformation is repentance. Acknowledging our sin and brokenness and need. It is not a morbid introspection. It is not constantly looking for dirt. It's simply responding to the Word, responding to God's message through other people, responding to the Spirit as sin is exposed in our lives. And repentance isn't just over fruit sins of behavior. You know, I think many Christians don't really sense much sinfulness because all they're looking for in their lives is the dirty dozen, the filthy five, the nasty nine, the awful eight. And as long as I'm not doing any of those, I must be doing okay. Jesus said, oh, no, 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 no. You've heard it said, don't commit murder. But I say to you, if you get angry, you're guilty of murder. See, as believers, we need to make sure we're asking God to expose our hearts and not just our behaviors. Now, you, you want to know how to have your heart exposed? Jesus said, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Just listen to your talk for the next 24 hours. Listen to the kinds of stuff 
that, that flows out of your heart based on your words, grumbling, complaining, gossiping, prideful statements, false humility. Our words expose our hearts. The Word exposes our hearts. Relationships expose our hearts. And as we're exposed, we repent. We simply acknowledge our need and our helplessness to change ourselves. Repentance is as much over self-righteousness and self-reliance as it is over self-indulgence. And we need to understand repentance is the first step toward transformation. John put it this way. He said, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and what? And cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see that? Repentance leads to supernatural change. Repentance leads to experiencing supernatural cleansing. It doesn't mean you just experience forgiveness. It means as we repent, the Holy Spirit falls upon us in fresh, transforming power and supernaturally changes our hearts. Repentance is the first word of the gospel. John the Baptist came before Jesus. John the Baptist preached a baptism of repentance. And Jesus, when he came, the first words out of his mouth in Mark, repent and believe the gospel. Martin Luther was used to spark the greatest revival the world's seen since Pentecost, called the Reformation. And he did it by, by coming up with 95 statements of how the church needed to experience revival. And the first thesis of Luther's 95 theses is this. When Jesus Christ called men and women to repent, he was setting the course for the entire Christian life. In other words, repentance isn't something you do at the beginning of the Christian life, and that's how you are saved from hell. It, it is that, but it's so much more than that. Repentance isn't what bad Christians do, men and women. Repentance is the normal Christian life. If you and I go out for coffee and I ask you, where are you repenting? If you sit there and stammer and stutter and say, I don't know, you're not growing. Do you hear that? If, if you don't know what you're repenting of, you're not growing. Repentance kicks off the process of supernatural transformation. Folks, we're still sinners. God, even as redeemed believers, God has sovereignly allowed to remain in us this alien power called indwelling sin. And that's why we sin. Sinning doesn't make us sinners. We're still sinners, and that's why we sin. Now, we acknowledge our sin, and we confess our sin, but we are not defined by our sin. And that is why the waltz isn't a one-step. It's not simply acknowledging our sin and our need, 
Repentance then leads to the second step, which Paul also talks about in this passage and emphasized. And that second step is to believe the gospel. Look again at verse 21. Repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. We do sin. We are sinful, but we're also new creations and we're not defined by our sinfulness. We're defined by our identity in Christ. And what gives us hope and encouragement and steadfastness and perseverance in the Christian life is that we are to affirm our identity never changes. Even at the point of our sin, our identity in Christ has not changed. Now, what is our identity? We're to affirm our identity as we waltz. First of all, if you know Christ, you're justified, which means just as if I'd never sinned and just as if I'd done everything right. That was Christ's identity. That's who he was. He never sinned. He did everything right. And when we trust in Christ, we are baptized into Christ and his identity becomes our identity. And so when God looks upon the child of God that has put their hope and trust in the promises of grace and the finished work of Christ, God actually sees me as clean as he sees Jesus. And in the midst of our failure, we need to be reminded that that's how I'm defined. I'm not defined by my sin. God doesn't look at me in light of my sin. He looks at me in light of my identity in Christ. Tim Keller used to say it all the time. Dear Christian, you are more sinful than you ever thought. But in Christ, you are more loved than you ever dreamed. Christian, there is nothing you could do that could cause God's love for you to diminish in any way. Nothing. Nothing. And there's nothing you could ever do that could make God love you more than he already does. Nothing. And as our sin is exposed... We acknowledge we're still broken, we're still sinful, God's still holy, sin needs to be repented of. Repentance is not saying, I did this and I promised to never do it again. That's not repentance. You know why? There's way too much pride in that. Way too much pride in saying, God, I'm sorry I did this, I'll never do it again. No, repentance comes with a humility that says, I, God, I did this. <laughs> and I don't say this lightly, but unless you change me, I'm probably going to do it again. And God, I desperately need Jesus to change me. And then you affirm your justified standing. And then you affirm your adopted status, that you are a son or daughter of God. Jesus said in John 17, 23, he prayed, he said, Oh God, help them to know that you love them as much as you love me. 
Now, we could probably just stop and reflect on that for an hour. Did you hear what I just said? Jesus prays in John 17, 23, O Father, help them to know that you love them just as much as you love me. Can I just tell you, so much of my life I don't believe that. I mean, I've preached it for 35 years. And rarely do I actually believe it in a way that really, I mean, I believe it here. I believe it rationally. It's my good theology. But you know what? Good theology isn't here. It starts here, maybe. But until it goes from here to here, good theology is just going to make you arrogant. Do you believe the gospel? But when we come to the belief step of the waltz, it's not just affirming our identity in Christ. It goes even beyond that. Look what Paul says next. He says, I commend you to God and the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance. The gospel of grace is not merely the message of God's unconditional love in Christ. It's also the message of God's supernatural transforming power in Christ. And this is where I found many, many, many Christians don't understand the gospel. Every Christian understands the gospel as the pathway to heaven and eternal life. Every Christian understands the gospel as the message of forgiveness. But what I've found over 35 years, very few Christians know the gospel as the message of supernatural transformation. Listen, the blood of Christ has a converting value. You know that. By the way, if you're here this morning and you don't know that, I want you to believe that. You, you, you cease trusting in your own efforts to try to merit, maintain, or earn God's salvation. And you transfer your trust from yourself. And you rest completely on the finished work of Christ and the promises of God. You take God at His word that if you would repent and believe in Christ, just like the thief on the cross who didn't do anything, he didn't know any theology, he was never baptized, he hadn't been to church, he'd memorized no scripture, the only thing he did was pray one prayer, Jesus, remember me when you come. Jesus says, okay, you'll be with me today in paradise. So folks, you don't prepare yourself to be a Christian. You simply take Jesus at his word and rest in what he's done for you. And then in the Christian life, at the places of our repentance, we realize not only is there a converting value to the blood of Christ, but there's a transforming value to the blood of Christ. 
The best way to describe this is an illustration that we use constantly at Oak Mountain regarding Numbers 21. Numbers 21, the people of Israel are in the wilderness. The text tells us they have to go around a place called Edom. It's actually a long way around. What happens to you sometimes when you've got to take the long way around? <laughs> Same thing happens to me. I get ticked. I get impatient. The text tells us, guess what? They became angry and impatient along the way, and they grumbled against God. Why are you doing this, God? And they grumbled against Moses. God, to grab their attention, sends poisonous snakes to them in the wilderness. And these snakes bite the people, and the venom is absolutely fatal. No anti-venom, no Boy Scout blood-sucking kit. Nothing can save them. They cry out to Moses. What do they do? First step of the waltz, they repent. We have sinned. Pray for us. See that? Waltz right there in Numbers 21. But then God told Moses, fashion a bronze serpent and put it up on a pole. And if anybody looks upon that bronze serpent who has been bitten, I promise you they will live. So the people were in the wilderness. They were bitten. We have sinned. Repent. Look in faith to the bronze serpent, but there's nothing magical about the bronze serpent. It, it was just the means by which God made His promise known. God made a promise that if you were bitten, venom coursing through your veins, you look at the bronze serpent in light of God's promise, what will happen? Now think about what happened in time and in space. This isn't make-believe. This isn't myth. They looked in faith, and God released and activated supernatural power from heaven. And real physical venom was neutralized. That's exactly the Christian life when it comes to the belief step of the waltz. You repent. You acknowledge your sin. You preach the gospel to yourself that you're not defined by your sin. But you don't stop there. You take this sin you're repenting of and you look to the cross. Just like Israel looked upon the bronze serpent. And when we look upon the cross of Christ and the power of His blood, what happens? Listen, please, listen. Supernatural transforming power is released from heaven just like it was in the wilderness. Look, if you can follow the earthly, you can understand the spiritual. If you understand real snakes, real poison, real bites, real fangs, real death, and a real bronze serpent and people really looking at it, and then all of a sudden they're alive... We don't even know if they felt it, but, but venom was neutralized, and they lived. Folks, that's the Christian life. Not trying harder, not pulling yourselves up by your own bootstraps, 
not committing to turn your life around, but helplessly looking to the cross and trusting that as it happened in the wilderness, it will happen in the desert of my own soul. Repent. Believe the gospel. And then Paul gives us the third step of the waltz. Look at verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves. Verse 31, therefore be alert. There is a part that we play. We're not lifeless sticks floating down the current just waiting to be zapped. There's a life for us to live. And we call that the fight step of the waltz. Why do we call that the fight step of the waltz? Because the New Testament constantly puts the Christian life in terms of a battle. The flesh, indwelling sin, I talked about earlier. Battles and wars against the Spirit. And the Spirit in you battles and wars against the flesh. Paul says, fight the good fight of faith. Paul says, we do not engage in warfare like earthly people do. Paul says in Ephesians, our battle is not against flesh and blood, against principalities and powers, the forces of darkness in the world. We fight the good fight, but we do it dependently. See, most Christians confess and try harder. There's no Jesus in that. You confess, you trust Jesus by looking to Jesus in faith, the promises of God in faith, just like the Israelites did. Their physical venom was neutralized. When we look to Christ, spiritual venom is neutralized. And then we step out in new obedience. It's not Nike Christianity, just do it. It's gospel Christianity. Now do it. Now that you've trusted in Christ afresh. You're not, you're not becoming resaved. We don't need all these recommitments that people do walking down the aisle again and again. We don't need that. What we need is a fresh application of the gospel to our lives. Paul says in Romans 8 verse 13, you by the Spirit put to death the deeds of the flesh. You catch that? You do that. I do that by the Spirit. Uh, that, that's a huge distinction there between just trying harder and by the Spirit, trusting the gospel, believing in the power of the blood of Christ, stepping out in new obedience. Now, this is critical. Waltzing isn't going to fix you. This isn't the new key to the victorious life. Waltzing doesn't fix you. It's simply how broken people in a broken world live broken lives until Christ returns, yet all the while experience supernatural transformation. People will come to me and say, Bob, the waltz, it's not working. I want to say, well, who told you that? Or why do you think it's not? Well, because I'm not getting better. You're not getting better at all? 
Like, you're not growing at all? Well, I am, but it's so slow. Oh, okay. So now you got impatience to repent of as well, right? (laughs) Waltzing's not going to fix you, folks. It's, It's not magic. But it is supernatural. And one thing I would want to leave you with is don't ever, ever forget that Christian life is supernatural. When, when we de-supernaturalize the Christian life, we leave the Christian life. The beautiful thing is God's always playing waltz music in our lives. What are you frustrated about today? What's got you a little discouraged? What are you not looking forward to this week? What difficulties you're facing? What if, what if I were to tell you all those things are simply waltz music? The great conductor, the great composer, God, is orchestrating events, circumstances, relationships in our lives to lovingly and gently expose us so that we would see our deeper need for Jesus. Nothing pleases God more than Jesus to be believed upon. Nothing pleases God more than for Jesus to be believed upon. And so God is playing waltz music sovereignly in every one of our lives to point us to Christ. And there's different dance floors. There's the dance floor of family. There's the dance floor of marriage. There's the dance floor of parenting. There's the dance floor of finances. There's the dance floor of relationships. There's the dance floor of physical health. There's the dance. I mean, I could go on and on and on and on. There's as many dance floors as there are areas of your life. And music is playing all the time by God's sovereign orchestration. Not because he's mad at you. Not because he's mean, not because he's harsh, but he's wanting us to experience the supernatural life. And we experience the supernatural life as we acknowledge our sin, see our need to preach the gospel to ourselves, trust in Christ to activate supernatural power, and then as we dependently step out to make the choices he's called us to make. The thing I love about the waltz is it's integrated. It keeps the Pharisee from becoming self-righteous by calling them to repentance. There is sin. You're not defined by it, but there is sin. It keeps the self-indulgent from living a life of license. There is a life to live. It keeps the one who just wants to try harder, realizing that only through Christ can we experience change. The waltz keeps you integrated. You see, all of us are heavy-footed by nature, by personality, by teaching background, by our peer group, 
by a whole kinds of other baggages. We are all heavy-footed in one of the steps of the waltz. All of us. And see, we waltz in a ballroom. Those of us here, the beautiful ballroom of Oak Mountain Presbyterian Church. And we learn how to waltz by waltzing together. And we help each other. And as people know us, they begin to see where we're heavy-footed. And we begin to learn by watching other people who they're heavy-footed too. But they're heavy-footed where I'm light-footed. And I need them and they need me. And then the beautiful, beautiful truth. We don't lead in the waltz. We are led by our Savior who teaches us how to dance. Keep on waltzing. That was my main thing today. But I do have a couple other things briefly. First of all, secondly, I should say, not only keep on waltzing, but keep growing in humility. Look at verse 19. Serving the Lord with all humility. The the key heart attitude to the Christian life and waltzing and ministry is humility. Folks, we are not all that. And we are not the center of the universe. And where you think you're convinced you're right, you actually could be wrong. And even if you are right, you're never more danger of being most wrong than when you're most right. Because your attitude's arrogant. Or cold. How much humility does the world see in our lives? How much humility do we see in each other's lives? Do you know one thing God hates? He doesn't say that very often. In Proverbs, he says he hates arrogance. I know some of us, we teach our children, don't say that word. God says it. He hates arrogance. Over and over again, it says in the Scriptures, God opposes the proud. Opposes. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be opposed by God. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And you know what's so beautiful about that? You don't need to work to be humble. It's it's actually an anti-condition. You can't even fulfill the condition. It's simply the anti-condition of admitting that the only thing you need is need. We simply need to acknowledge our brokenness and sinfulness. Again, not that it defines us, but it is true of us. If we really understand the enormity of our sin, it leads to humility. You know how you can tell if you have humility? How do you respond to somebody who has committed that sin that you absolutely despise? I'm not confusing right and wrong here. 
God's truth is clear. And I can speak into someone's life about sin. But if I'm aware of my own sin, they're going to hear it from a humble heart. Brother, sister, I'm capable of anything. And if you don't believe that, you're in trouble. And so when you meet up with sin in someone else's life, you meet it with the same grace with which God has met you. You'll never have humility until God exposes your sin. Now, you don't need to go out and send up a storm. And wow, now you're going to be humble. No, there's already enough in there. And as you humbly allow God to expose it, it'll lead to humility. Now, how do we gain humility? Well, look at verse 20. Paul says, I did not shrink from declaring anything that was profitable. I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Humility comes as we submit ourselves to God's Word. The the loudest waltz music of all are the Scriptures. That's what we're going to be doing together this year as we have our devotions in the New Testament and journal things. We need to submit ourselves to God's Word. And let me tell you something. Caleb and Mallory are here. If you guys humble yourselves before the teaching of the Word, before Caleb like you have me, this church is going to be in good shape. Everyone that's ever come here to preach, I've said before they got up, you're going to love this church because these people listen to God's Word. These people are hungry. These people want to grow. Don't lose that humility. And then something else that is humbling in verse 29 and 30, Paul says, after my departure, fierce wolves are going to come in, even among your own selves. Verse 30, from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things. You know what Paul's saying here? Paul's saying here the real threats to the church are inside of it, not outside of it. I feel like the church has got its force fields up against everything out in the world. And the real problem is inside of it. How humbling is that? That Paul is saying your greatest threat, Ephesus, is not out there. Your greatest threat is right here. May God humble us that we wouldn't do anything that would bring shame to the name of Christ or harm the bride of Christ. You know, it's interesting that the more Paul grew in maturity, the more humble he became. You've heard me say this before. 1 Corinthians 15, probably wrote it around 57 AD. He says, I'm the least of the apostles. That's pretty humble, least of the apostles. Apostle, but least of the apostles. Then a few years later, he wrote Ephesians. He says, I'm the least among all of God's people. 
I'm the least of the saints. I'm the least among Christians. Huh, that's some downward mobility there. Least of the apostles, least of all Christians. End of his life, I'm the chief of sinners. Reminds me when people wanted to stone the sinful woman. And Jesus said, let him who was out sin cast the first stone. Do you remember what happens next? It says, beginning with the oldest, they began to walk away. Do you feel like a bigger sinner or a smaller sinner than a year ago? Scripture would say, the more we grow, the older we get, the more aware of our sin we become. It, it doesn't define us. It doesn't devastate us. Why? Because we hope in our identity in Christ. But nonetheless, the older Paul got, the more he saw his sin. So keep growing in humility. And then lastly, keep pressing on in grace. I mean, could there be a more fitting conclusion for what I want to say today. Verse 32. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among those who are sanctified. Keep pressing on in grace. Brief history of Ephesus. Paul planted it. Spent three years there, eventually handed the baton off to Timothy. Timothy became the pastor of Ephesus. And then maybe uh, 20 years, 30 years later, the Apostle John receives the Revelation, the book of Revelation. And in Revelation 2, the angel speaks to the church at Ephesus, this very same church in Acts 20. Commends it for all kinds of things, then says, I have this against you. You've left your first love. You've lost your first love. See, Paul passed the baton to Timothy. Timothy passed the baton to other pastors. They did really well running the race for a time. But you know what Ephesus is right now? A tourist spot. It's a place that people go to see archaeological relics. At some point, they drop the baton, they stop dancing, they forgot how to waltz, they lost their humility. They didn't keep on keeping on in grace. My prayer for this church is that we keep on keeping on. My prayer for this church is the, the best years are yet ahead of her. My prayer for this church is that God uses this church to change this community and change this city. And continue to change this world. 
Notice that when Paul says, I commend you to God and the word of his grace, Paul's confidence isn't in Timothy. No man builds a church. This is not, nor has it ever been, Bob Flayhart's church. This is the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the king and head of his church. But Paul was confident that the church, as it remained faithful to the gospel, will continue to grow. I've used the illustration all throughout this transition of speed skating. I was actually going to come out in a speed skating outfit, but uh, trust me, that would have been utterly too embarrassing. But what I did get, and I'm going to ask Caleb to come up right now, what I did get was a baton. And it says, lead pastor, Oak Mountain Presbyterian Church. And it is time to pass the baton. At the end of the passage, uh, you all stand, you stand, at, but at the end of the passage, um, the text says that they, they knelt on the beach and prayed. And so let me pray for y'all. Lord, thank you for the beauty of this church. Thank you for the beauty of your spirit, the beauty of how you've worked the beauty of how we believe you give us hope you're going to continue to work. And so, God, we pray for Caleb, for Mallory, for the girls. We pray that they would be loved as Laurie and I and our kids have been loved. And, God, we pray that we would all keep the main thing the main thing. And that main thing is not a man. That main thing is Jesus. God, may we be a church that is faithful to the gospel. God, thank you for these dear, sweet people, the sheep of this flock. Thank you for the elders, the deacons, the women shepherds, the under shepherds, and every single person in the pew and those who aren't here today. God, may we walk with Jesus for a lifetime, and may you bless our children's children's children. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And now receive the benediction, all of you, you included. <laughs> and I do this humbly on my knees. And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among the saints, being sanctified by His Spirit, grace, and power. Amen.